Welcome to the Propane Business Podcast. I'm Johnny. And I'm Yusuf. We set up and built propanefitness.com into the profitable semi-automated system that it is today, which allowed us to quit our corporate jobs and coach online full-time. More importantly, we were able to do this without a huge online audience or being glued to social media every day. We're now ready to share everything from the failures we've made to the systems that now consistently generate hundreds of thousands in revenue. We help personal trainers, coaches, and gym owners do the same by avoiding the mistakes we've made and the best practices going forward. Subscribe to this podcast to learn what we're doing and what we've done to build and scale propanefitness.com. We'll be teaching you how to generate a steady flow of online clients, win at Facebook ads, automate your coaching systems, and to achieve financial independence. I guess that one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on was, I think it started with with me buying your like physical book back in, I can't remember when it was, but it was a long time ago. I remember trying to apply that into my own training. Since then, we've seen you at one of your seminars, and then now Mike is coaching me. So that's been an interesting experience as well. But yeah, for the, for those for those for people listening who haven't heard of Mike before, owns a business called Reactive Training Systems, very well known in the powerlifting space. But I suppose I'll let you intro yourself, Mike, in the sense of like who do, who does Reactive Training Systems work with? Who do you work with? Why does like why does the business exist? Who are we the most suited to to work with, really? And of course, powerlifters, and of course. Intermediate and advanced powerlifters, I think, are a given as well, given the online nature of our business. Um, kind of beyond that, we've been giving it some more thought lately. And um, when I think about my career and the common themes that that track through it, one of the common threads is individualization and really taking individualized training as far as we reasonably can by really customizing training so that it's tailored to fit an individual lifter. And that's true for pretty much everything that we do. The coaching, of course, the custom coaching is not unique to us, but you know, we also do uh, RTS classroom. So we're aiming to teach people um, similarly, you know, and the, the teaching, a lot of it centers around individualization, uh, the online tools, aim at helping people make better training decisions so that it's more tailored to fit their individual response and so on. Uh, I would say that's kind of a thread that runs through pretty much everything that I've done in powerlifting. So did it start with obviously you being a competitive powerlifter yourself and doing some, did you ever do in-person work or did it start online straight away? I did in-person work as like the the team coach for my university powerlifting team. So we had a club team, uh, and I coached. It was a full men's team and a full, pretty much a full women's team as well. And I coached them for three years. It's just a de facto guy in charge. Everyone needs a program, so it was up to me to figure all that out. So I had had three years of doing that when I graduated, and. So I graduated in 2007, the summer of 2007, and I had been writing a lot at the time. My original intent was to self-publish and, well, to try to publish in a series of articles in Powerlifting USA, the print magazine for powerlifting at the time. And it grew and grew. And at some point I looked at it and said, I should really try to turn this into a book. Uh, so I self-published it as a book, and it got good traction because I was a good powerlifter and had uh, had good name recognition at the time. You know, I didn't have uh, a means to sell it even, but I had made connections uh, with people in the, that, that did have storefronts and stuff like that. So I would sell to them wholesale, and they would do the distribution. And, you know, that grew. And at some point, somebody emailed me and said, hey, will you coach me online? And that would have been maybe a year later. So it was summer of 2008, you know, I started coaching people online and, you know, it really took off. That's kind of really when online coaching was really starting to take off in the powerlifting space. Uh, so it was kind of nice to get in on the ground floor of that. That's what I find so fascinating about you as a coach, Mike, because the fitness industry is so such a large spectrum. And really, I would probably put you more under the category of data scientist than fitness coach. And this is why I think for you and Johnny, you're kind of a match made in heaven. Johnny <laughs> said to me that you were selected 
that, that he sorry he was selected as a client because of his high compliance to the program and large amount of of data entry. So I think like when you have someone with an accountant's mentality, and I know you're an ex engineer, if that's is that right? Like, not and, not fully. I've had some engineering education, I suppose. Okay, and so the overlap of those two disciplines provides a really unique perspective and approach to to quantifying your athletes and to approaching to approaching powerlifting in general. And so as a result, you've forged your own niche almost by being so product focused and so like method focused that you've not really like the marketing's almost happened as it's unfolded as you created this niche following. Is there anything you'd anything you've learned from that process that if you were to do things again that you would do differently as well as anything you would recommend some let's say you've got someone who's interested in establishing an online presence and and marketing their online coaching but they haven't got the matrix level data science ability that that you have yeah yeah i think there's a lot that i could possibly say about that that it's certainly not lost on me that there's a unique interplay between the time that i was getting started and the conditions that my business grew up in uh, and where we are today and that the same path that I took is really not available uh, to other people in quite the same way that it is now. The, the landscape has changed dramatically. I was fortunate that I was a high-level powerlifter myself and that helped a lot with the early marketing that you know, got a good bit of name recognition and things like that. And even for other high-level powerlifters, I think that's a path that's not fully available anymore because there's a much broader understanding that, hey, just because you've done a lot as a lifter, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're a good coach. When the whole space is a lot less crowded, that argument matters a lot less. But now that there's more people in that space and that's a much more prevalent thought process, it's going to be difficult. Uh, you know, if you're coming at this just from the sense of, hey, I'm a good athlete, you should hire me. And I mean, to that end, you know, I've carved out my niche as somebody who's really interested in the systems. Isabella has brought to my attention that really what we do is we're a powerlifting systems company. Like, yes, we coach athletes to compete and things like that, but really, what we're interested in is the creation of the system and even to the point of helping other coaches create their own systems. So that's something that we really like, but other people that may not be your thing. Other people are like, I'm fond of saying that coaching itself is about leadership, relationship, and creativity. We actually look at these as three distinct categories, but also really interconnected categories. And my bias as a coach, tends to be on the, the creative problem-solving side of it. And I'm a little bit less relationship-oriented than some other coaches. My leadership style is uh, pretty hands-off. I like to push a lot of those decisions toward the athlete and offer guidance, but I'm not a real authoritative coach. So that's a, a bit about my style. And if someone else has a different style, that will affect how they carve out their own niche, I would expect. Because I think the in strength sports, and I think it's probably the same for bodybuilding. Like I suppose that an area of the market who are more like they're not looking for the next twenty-eight day fat loss plan, right? They're a bit more aware of what does and doesn't work. So when they're looking for a coach, the decision is less based around well the marketing, the brand. It's, it is more of a reputational thing, but it's also who they've worked with and maybe the processes that's put across in the content. So I, I guess it's quite a hard question, I suppose, but for someone who is trying to put themselves out in the powerlifting world, do you think it's more important to focus on like just getting clients and getting results? Or do you think it's the, the thought processes that go behind, as you say, the systems that advertise what it is that you do? I think you're going to want to find whatever, whatever niche is best for you. You know, the, I mean, this, uh, I don't know how to say this in a non-arrogant way, but 
probably most people are not going to want to try to compete with like what we're doing on a systems, like from a system standpoint, just because that's what we're really good at, you know. And if you're less inclined toward that, then you know, find what you're really good at and, and put your efforts there. Um, you do have to systematize somewhat if you plan to scale at all. But um, you know, I think kind of finding the aspect of coaching that you really enjoy, finding the the, the thing that you're good at and and really getting good at it is is useful. Um, I still think that probably word of mouth is the best way to advertise your services. And a friend of mine recently said that reputation is what people say about you in private. And I think the way that you get there is by treating clients. And you, you just can't go wrong if you're really buying into the success of the people that you're working with. I think that's a really good way to go. And of course, there's more to do and there's always more to do. But like anything else, getting the fundamentals right is very important. In terms of treating your clients right, and you mentioned that your coaching style is less relationship-based, more systems-based. A lot of people believe that powerlifting has to be one-on-one coaching. We've had a lot of success with group coaching, although that's generally been beginner to intermediate lifters. I think as people start to become more and more advanced, it starts to stretch the limit of our systems to to coach them in a group setting. Have you done group coaching in the kind of standard sense? And what are your thoughts around that as a model? We do that a bit, but we're like you that there are some, there's some limit in there somewhere where you know, the requirement for individualized attention starts to diminish the results that you can get in a group setting. You know, I, I think that beginners to powerlifting, there's no reason that, you know, group, like a group setting, that would be a bad thing. And this also, uh, and this is probably what you're getting at as well, like it's going to depend on your orientation. If my orientation is a lot toward the programming, it, it's not that that I don't think the other stuff is important. It's just that my mentality goes toward programming for lots and lots of fixes. If I've got an athlete who struggles with confidence under a heavy attempt, my inclination is to fix that through programming. We'll give them more attempts that are heavy, give them a challenge that they can overcome and gradually build them up that way. Whereas another coach may try to solve that problem through like direct dialogue or something else, like a more sports psychology approach. Uh, and I don't think that either one is necessarily right or wrong. It's, it's about what's getting results for that athlete. So just as an example, that's my programming orientation so it makes some opportunity though because if you're coaching in a group setting when people start to have issues like that i start to think about what can i do from a system standpoint to push that boundary a bit further maybe you can have a beginner athlete who doesn't really notice the difference between specialized programming and like group programming but then once they get into the intermediate level, the difference becomes more apparent. Okay, how can we push that boundary further and further back? And then we should also, too, at least give voice to the idea that group, like a group setting may be less than ideal from a individualized programming standpoint, but you are getting more relationship. You're getting more, in some ways, more leadership. It's just kind of peer-to-peer interpersonal style um and i mean we can look at crossfit and see the success that crossfit boxes have had uh by leveraging that kind of group dynamic and it may not be ideal from a programming standpoint and that's going to be pretty important to me but you know if you uh you, you know like in fitness a lot of the times we come back to uh compliance you know um it doesn't matter if it's the best program in the world if the client is non-compliant um and maybe a group setting leads to better compliance in which case you could make a strong argument i think that that's a better solution so within the so i suppose the thing that 
I, I jumped to thinking about in this conversation with you, Mike, is that even with when you talk about something being individualized, perhaps coaches listen to this when they think of I'm going to write an individualized program for this, for this client, for this athlete. They probably think of starting from scratch. Like they think, okay, right, it's like sets of 12, sets of eight. Like, how should I start? Like, how do I even right. go about building this? Whereas I, I, at least, well, I'd be very surprised if it's not the case. Like, you are taking ex- the building blocks that you know work and starting them into the right place, whether it's so you have this existing methodology, a way you're going to approach it, and then ways to customize within that framework rather than everything is built from the ground up with every person you work with. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. We have a bunch of uh, strategies just sitting on the shelf. Um, I'm obviously a programming nerd, and I, I like to study programs and methods from different coaches and athletes and things like that. And I try hard to see it as they would see it. So maybe the best example of that is more recently that there's a, a prominent coach who came across a photo of him coaching one of his athletes they're doing squats standing on a bosu ball and then it's front page a no-no in any sort mm. of serious strength world right and, you know, it's like, like meme, meme territory right? yeah yeah exactly <laughs> and here you have this guy who's he's a coach that i have a lot of respect for at least when it comes to like programming style and his knowledge around training the the disconnect of seeing someone that you respect doing some something that's like a, a no-no meme is uh, <laughs> uh, pretty intense. But I thought, well, wait a minute, let me see if I can understand what he's trying to accomplish, it, like in a real way. Whether I would make that decision or not is not relevant. I just want to understand it as he does. So long story, somewhat shorter. He's a strong believer in high frequency of training. Like the more focused practice that you can get the better the better the outcome is going to be but loading demands are still real right you can't just squat heavy every day that you have need to have some days that are heavier some days that are lighter you know volume has to vary and things like that however if you have an athlete come in and you tell them just squat 40 kilos for five sets of five or something they're going to it's nothing you know they're not focused they're not really dialed into the technique or anything like that they're just doing some reps and going home so by having them stand on a a bosu ball or some sort of surface now all of a sudden they have to pay really close attention but you're not killing them with load you know now i'm not saying that that's actually a great idea but i can understand what his thought process likely is uh and so okay that's something to keep in mind you know if if ever it's a tool i feel like i need to use but if you do that with all kinds of things you know you build up kind of this library of of tools of of strategies really because it's not just a single tool by itself because that leaves you in the same spot that you're talking about where you're just kind of staring at a blank piece of paper and you're like uh do i use heavy singles or not you know how often well if you kind of already have some things put together into coherent strategies, then that gives you a starting point, you know, like something that I do. Um, we've developed these strategies and we give them all kind of, kind of weird names. Uh, it helps us to remember what the strategy is about. Um, like I have uh, one strategy called roses and then the slightly more aggressive variant of that strategy is called thorns. And, you know, so you get the idea, right? So when I'm going over things with a new athlete, lots of times a strategy will pop into my head. Okay, that, that might be a good starting point. So we pull out that strategy and look at it. And, and then you start tweaking things. And you tweak. Realistically, you end up tweaking almost everything. But it's still easier than starting with a blank piece of paper and then writing it all from nothing. And that's presumably how you you make group coaching work. So I, I imagine within your framework, it's, you know, a, a, an athlete comes to you, they obviously want to improve the, in the case of RTS, they want to improve their, their total, right? Their work. So it's right. like, well, what, what are the main, what are the competition lifts? Where are they weak in those competition lifts? What does a program look like? 
within this framework. And then I, I imagine where you feel that stops being relevant is managing stress, managing recovery and how a, a, an individual would adjust to that. Is that, yeah. is that, is that why you feel kind of a more individualized approach? Is, is, yeah. Is prevalent? So yeah, I'll, I'll kind of avoid veering too far off into like emerging strategies, theories, territory and things like that. But, uh, um, where we kind of cut it off for group coaching is like at the level where you're making lots of those individualized changes. So if we pull a strategy off the shelf for a custom training client, the customization process like that off the shelf strategy provides a skeleton, but after you're finished tweaking everything, it's you've, you've touched almost every part of it. You know, you can't really provide that level of touch to a group, like in a group coaching setting. Uh, so we go up to that point. Um, another limitation is that emerging strategies does require a lot of attention from the coach. Like you have to monitor the training to know when to end each, uh, development cycle and, um, to run the block reviews and, and kind of get creative about uh, what types of things is this athlete responding to? What problem might be, might that be solving for them? And, you know, where can we take kind of further exploration? Uh, and you can't really do that in a, in a group environment either. There's just too many people. Um, so we try to push that toward the athlete a bit, uh, try to get them to comment on what do they think. We try to get them to run block reviews on themselves and, and just kind of take a look at it. I find that if a lifter is just interested in trying some pin squats or something like that, then it's usually worth a try. And if they just respond badly to it, most people don't want to do it again. I mean, mm -hmm. it's not to say that like you, your intuition on things is perfect. That's often not, but you can at least eliminate the worst responses. So you've got an interesting approach to that. There's a, there's an aspect of this, which is letting go of the attachment to any particular modality or training tool or any, anything in your toolbox. And you said about the coach that you respect, making someone do something that is on the face of it, stupid or meme worthy. And you're like, hang on, what's the actual rationale behind this? And they're like, if an athlete wants something in their program that you're thinking this maybe isn't what I would do as my first choice, but let's try it and see what the data says. And Johnny was telling me about the trials that you've done with HRV, for example, as well of looking at something which should like, we, we all really want to work because it would be great if it did, right. but then you very much take it down to, okay, let's just test it, see if it does work. And then if so, we'll incorporate it into the program. Have you, how do you, is this something you ever struggle with in terms of managing your own biases? Because I think, especially in powerlifting, and this is partly because of branding and ego, and you get certain ideologues that are all about a specific modality. And no matter what the new evidence that comes out is, they have to rationalize that away because it, it represents part of their brand, like being attached to keto or heavy fives or whatever it is um how have you kept yourself a clean slate mentally and avoid any of those biases and being drawn into certain things i appreciate you framing it that way but i suppose i would probably be the last person to know <laughs> if i had failed in that endeavor you know <laughs> um, but That's, yeah. i mean it, you could make the argument that i mean i'm sure some people do make the argument that maybe take rpe too far or something like that I don't think I do. Otherwise I wouldn't do it. Um, <laughs> but I, I do try to keep in mind though, that if I'm retaining some commitment to an approach, that's not ideal, then I'm doing a disservice to my athletes. And so another kind of rule of thumb that I've tried to follow, I look, I have, an ego and I still train and I want to be strong, progress things and things like that. Um, kind of a rule that I set out for myself early on was that I didn't want to 
make a tool, implement a tool or anything like that for any of my athletes that I wouldn't use for my own training. That if it was good enough for my athletes, then it was good enough for me kind of thing. And that helps because it's, you know, not only am I hurting my athletes, I'm hurting myself. <laughs> and so any sort of commitment to an inferior process or an inferior approach is going to be detrimental in that way. And, and I hope that helps to keep a clean slate. I don't know. Uh, you guys may actually have a better viewpoint on that. Well, no, I, I, I agree. I think, that's, I think that's, that's a good metric to use in the same way that they say, rather than take stock tips from a financial advisor, ask what's in their portfolio. Yeah. Or if a doctor's prescribing you a drug, be like, okay, would you take this drug if you were in my position? And I think when someone has skin in the game, it completely shifts the decision process. And yeah, I think if you're consistent with that in your own training and you're advising the same to your clients, then either you're masochistically <laughs> yourself, do, do something that <laughs> or there's an alignment with the data that you're gathering and what you're actually practicing. Yeah, if you were just doing five by five every day, Mike, but telling me to do other things, I think I'd I'd have questions. Right. Scandal. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Jason and I recently completed the seven day on ramp course for online coaching with Propane Fitness. I enrolled because I currently work offline and wanted to know the best way to start my venture into online coaching. I've been following Propane Fitness for a number of years online and this just seemed like the perfect opportunity. One concern that I had before starting the course was that I don't really have much in the way of a social media following. I spoke to Johnny before enrolling and he assured me that as long as I had some kind of social media following, I could utilize the tools and techniques the course was excellent. I found it helpful, engaging and insightful. It also kept me accountable. Logging in for the lives each day with Johnny and then having work to do afterwards, it meant I went and got it done and actioned the advice. So by the end of the week, I had gained three paying online clients and that's having little to no social media following and never really having put any fitness content out online before. As well as those clients, I've come away from the course with a newly instilled confidence and clear direction of where I can take my online coaching business in the future. I highly recommend signing up for the course and thanks again to Johnny and Yusuf. It'd be good to just shift gears a little bit and talk about like RTS as a brand, as a business. So I think like back to, I didn't really appreciate that you'd started basically as an author, turned into a powerlifting coach. And now it's something I'm a bit proud of actually is that I bootstrapped my whole company on uh, an initial investment of uh, $300. I, <laughs> I put $300 into it to hire an editor uh, for my book, and I bootstrapped it from then, which uh, now we have, what, I think eight coaches, a uh, full-time web developer and things like that. And the, the, look at it and think, man, that $300 has gone a long way. <laughs> Hell of a return. Yeah. So because if you compare that to like i remember i think it was a book with a a, a dvd of like a seminar you did explaining mm -hmm. the concepts and now you've got like your own web app basically to help powerlifters yeah. plan the training so that's quite a development as a business and i think a, a lot of coaches think firstly a lot of people think that you can't make a living through online coaching and then i think a lot of people secondarily think that something like the powerlifting world people just don't like no one pays for coaching people just work out to do it on their own and then and then program for themselves so how did you i suppose there was a time when you maybe got too many inquiries for yourself personally or you were coaching too many clients and you think okay i need to hire someone here or i need to take this a bit more seriously Can you talk a bit right. about that point in rts's development sure i talked a little bit about my university time i went to the air force academy and U.S. So when I left, I was active duty in the Air Force. I was coaching people, like my publication and everything, I was coaching people as a side job. So from RTS officially started in 2008, and I was in the Air Force as a full-time job until 2012 in that time. But grew. I think when I left the, the military, I probably had 40 clients. 30 or 40 clients that I was doing this kind of as a side thing. I was basically spending all of my free time 
on growing the business. And, and I thought, hey, this is going rather well. Like, hopefully I can, maybe I can just make this my full-time job. Maybe it would go really well. Uh, it's still a really nerve-wracking decision. Uh, anytime you're taking a risk like that, you know, I remember doing the math on the numbers like over and over. Oh, no, no, it looks it'll be okay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, yeah. But uh, you're right. Like I, when I went full time in 2012 at my like my own personal coaching peak in say 2014, I think I had 80 clients, which isn't wow. is too many. <laughs> <laughs> like I was doing nothing else but like coaching and training. That was it. I, I didn't have kids at the time, or really like I was married. Not much of a life. <laughs> I was just coaching. And, um, you know, I knew then like, Hey, this is not going to work, but I was too busy to be able to hire anyone either. So I just had to not take on clients and I was unwilling to like let people just, you know, say, Hey, I'm not working with you anymore. Um, so just kind of, kind of let natural attrition take its run its course. You know? And, uh, when things got down to a bit more of a manageable level, we started bringing on uh, assistant coaches, you know, first as contractors kind of on a per client basis. And then eventually as like a salaried position. Uh, now we kind of do a mix of both, but you know, I'll, I'll say that like when I, when I kind of made the jump from like took the first coach from a contract uh, per client uh, scale to a salaried position, I was amazed at the difference in like just in their buy-in and their commitment. Um, and, and I think they were kind of surprised too. It, it wasn't anything conscious, you know, it wasn't like they were holding back on purpose or anything, but I think a lot of times, you know, making an overt commitment to someone uh, kind of deepens that relationship. You know, and, and a relationship with an employee is still a relationship. Definitely, yeah. I mean, that it's something. So I suppose like two things I can we can both relate to. Like we both did the quitting. We we both used to work <laughs> in finance. Both did the like, is this going to be all right? Um, right. And then re recently hiring someone, we've had various contractors, and recently hiring someone full time is definitely a. The, I think there's a. It, I think it's quite nerve wracking as the mm -hmm. employer. But I think the employee definitely gets this like, all right, okay, this is serious. This isn't just like a jobs yeah. ad, ad hoc when, when they're available. Right. It's not a, it's not a part-time thing. It's not a side job. It's a real job that, you know, it, it's, it's also, there's a trust component too. Uh, I'm not sure how it is with you, but like for me, everyone is dispersed. You know, that mm. I don't have anyone that's, I think my closest employee is probably still like 12 hours driving away from me. Uh, yeah. So, you know, there's an element of trust that has to exist, you know, that they're doing what they're supposed to do. And, you know, yeah. So you've got a team of, a team of coaches that you presumably, you're kind of the head, the, the manager of that, and then someone full time working on, the software side of things as well. Yeah. Yeah. How did you decide to make the, I guess, what is the, the training log now? Like what was, cause I, I imagine, and you'd have to, you'd have to talk numbers, but I imagine that wasn't like a, Oh, we'll just add that on. I imagine that's quite a project. There's yeah. some expense going into that. What made you think to move in that direction? And this has been years in the making. And this is another one of those things that, I kind of don't advise people to follow the same path. You know? um, I'm doing it because I kind of can't not do it. Um, like I started off uh, in the early days, I hired a, a web development, you know, some guy local doing web development to, to build a website. But wouldn't it be neat if we had this training log thing? And there was a version of it, it you know, was pretty terrible <laughs> you know we've torn it down and rebuilt it a number of different times um and also like i'm no web developer i don't know anything about web development 
So for me to manage a web developer has been uh, difficult, to put it mildly, uh, from a managerial standpoint, you know. And I've been burned a few times, too, like hiring web developers that, you know, worked for me for a couple of years, only much later to find out, like, this is not professional work that they're turning out. But I was none the wiser, you know. Well, shit, I guess we'll tear it down and start over, you know. And those those are very expensive. Like, the most expensive thing that that I do in business and probably probably holds true for most people uh, is hiring someone, you know, to, to, to have someone full-time on a payroll and be like, well, for the next year, you're just going to rebuild some stuff that we had kind of already had that just was terribly built, you know, like, well, that's expensive. That's really expensive. <laughs> like, so again, like I wouldn't suggest that anyone else kind of do the same thing. I have this compulsion that I really want, like I have a, this vision in my head of what it could be and I'm trying to, to bring that to life. Uh, I don't know if it will ever pan out financially or not, but, but yeah, fingers crossed. No, I don't envy your web developers at all. Like I think <laughs> being, being given the, the vision <clears throat> and the complexity of a system like that and putting it into web app, I, wouldn't know where to begin no. and then as you said also even from a managerial perspective like to try and audit that when you're not conversant in the language right. of, of the development it's like how do you even I know can, but it's stuff that like i wouldn't even expect because i can test to see if the, the overall output is correct things like that and, you know we do test stuff like that but the things that have given us problems is that you know, back then we were building in such a way that it made it uh, difficult to continue building. So it got to the point where, you know, I said to my developer, this was years ago, uh, developers ago, uh, I said, you know, hey, can we move this button from this side of the page to this other side of the page? And he says, that's going to take me about a day. And <laughs> I was like, something's wrong here. <laughs> and you know, I started having other people that didn't, that did know coding. Hey, can you take a look at this? And that's when I was kind of alerted, like, Hey, uh, not good, man. Not good. So, um, yeah. I'd always assume that you'd, you'd made it Mike, to be honest, like the spread, the spreadsheet you sent me, I, I looked at it and I thought, yeah, that makes sense. Like I just assumed you'd, you'd made the whole thing. No, so, no, the spreadsheets. Yeah. yeah I make the spreadsheets, but they're, Spreadsheets are not very nice to use. They're not terribly user-friendly, at least the ones I make. Um, they're functional, and I can get them to do a lot of cool stuff, but they're not pretty. <laughs> you know? um, but, you know, kind of to what you guys were talking about, yeah, like I'm looking at this this latest gargantuan spreadsheet that I've produced, and and let me put it this way. Like when I am building it and trying to, to fix it or anything like that, it's like the, I'm straining my mental abilities to be able to, to understand what it is that I'm trying to do and like what, what variables do I need to do bring in here and, and uh, what kind of operations need to happen, things like that. So to be able to communicate this to a developer uh, is going to be a challenge, <laughs> mm. but like it, it, it doesn't help either that like this has been literally years in the making, you know, like I'm comfortable in Excel or in spreadsheets and things like that and, and writing. So that has become kind of a creative outlet for me, you know, Hey, wouldn't it be cool if we could, calculate this number and then that would tell you this other thing, this other piece of information that might be useful. So I'll get into a spreadsheet and make a, like this latest one that I'm talking about now, it started out as, as a toy that I made because I was curious about some training variable and it was like, Oh, actually that's pretty useful. And so we build onto it and build onto it and build onto it for years. And now it's a monster, <laughs> you know, it's pretty cool. I think, but 
it's also a monster and you go, well, how do I explain to someone else where the layers begin? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Man. yeah. I mean, I- someone, someone who is not necessarily, uh, fluent in Excel because I mean, to be honest, in my experience, most people who are good like web coders or something like that probably aren't probably aren't taking spreadsheets to this level. Like, like I've shown uh, uh, these spreadsheets to a number of developers, and uh, at one point I got a comment of like, "This is abuse of Excel. <laughs> you know, it's not supposed to function like this, but yet it does." Now, I, I don't know, it's funnier than anything, but, um, yeah, so uh, I only bring that up to say that, like, I think most developers are not literate in spreadsheet to that level. So it's not just like, hey, here's the spreadsheet, figure it out and build it into a web app. You know, like, you can't, you can't do that. So it, you've got to untangle <laughs> what's actually happening. And, uh, yeah, that's going to be, it's going to be many, uh, long meetings and whiteboards and stuff like that. Uh, I, I, I do honestly, I think that the, the level of spreadsheeting that you do, I do think <laughs> it is like, I think it's at the limit of the, of the tool or it must be pretty close to the limit in terms well, of what, what it can do. Lately I've been using Google sheets, uh, just because it's so much easier to share and, yeah. to kind of collaborate on one document and yeah that one is about at its limit of mm. you know, like it's bogging down to the point where uh, i don't know making changes you make a change and then you've got to wait for a few minutes for all the calculations to update so uh excel proper would be uh a bit faster but you know then you got other limitations so really and, and this is a thing right like because anyone else who has you know an idea like this at some point goes you know what spreadsheets are no longer the proper tool for this it needs to be built into like an actual uh program you know with a with a real database <laughs> you know not not this uh makeshift stuff so i think when, when you're starting to strain Google and Microsoft. Uh, like, okay, yeah. we're at the edge edge use case of this particular well, thing. Um, well, I think I'm I'm using more resources than they uh, want, but I'm, I'm sure it's not. Uh, you log in. There's a lot of calculations, at, but uh, <laughs> well, the guys at Google are just like, oh god, Mike's logged well, in again. Here we go. Mike's made an update. <laughs> It's all because he has to know uh, whether he should do, you know, two sets or three. <laughs> the guy out, out the back, like winding up the, the dynamo and uh, turning on the generators. Um, so in terms of creative outlet, then you, you mentioned that this is kind of one form of it, but we've seen you doing a lot more stuff on Instagram and YouTube at the moment. Is that mm-hmm. a deliberate marketing strategy that you're following or like what's what's been the, the process to to moving into kind of more front-end social media? Yeah, we're making some efforts. I mean, um, kind of depends on the the precise uh, outlet, I suppose. Like for my Instagram, I tend to be pretty top of mind. It's just kind of whatever is on my mind at the moment is what's coming out there. A lot of it is centered around my own training or client training things like that um we're a little more deliberate when it comes to like the rts channels uh rts instagram rts youtube um our newsletter and things like that so they i suppose like in the in the development of of rts it, it, it certainly seems like you you've kind of positioned it and maybe maybe this is the case maybe this isn't but it seems like you you've put yourself in the position where you have a lot of time to back to, I guess back to what we were saying in the beginning, like focus on the, the the core product, focus on like the center of you know driving things like the the spreadsheet that we're talking about. And I it seems like you have a team around you 
that is largely running things like the social media presence, the bulk of the coaching, the business, and your focus is on kind of the the thing that you do best, which is driving the the key concepts forward. I'm trying to get more and more in that direction. It's funny that you mentioned that because I I suppose kind of over the course of this conversation and, and kind of thinking back to where I was when I left the military and things like that, I'm much closer to that now than I was then, but it doesn't feel like that all the time. You know, it's kind of the entrepreneurial gap, I guess. But it's, uh, I do coach fewer clients now. And, you know, like John Garofano is our operations director and uh, he's actually the frontline supervisor for the coaching staff. So he's in charge of, uh, making sure that we have a professional development program and uh, that you know, just how how the operations are happening and things like that. So it was nice to be able to step back from some of that and uh, putting someone in charge of marketing who's actually an expert in these areas and can tell me things that I don't know for, for sure. <laughs> you know? uh, and it also, like you pointing out, like it, does afford me more time to to do the things that I do best. You know, the team component I think is pretty essential. At least, at least for the vision that I've got, it's pretty essential. Do you find that I feel like team management and hiring is a part of like, especially a business like this? You know, you get into yeah. you, you like barbells and stuff. You know, you like the <laughs> fitness and lifting weights, and then before you know, you're having to make like a hiring decision or run a team and, and manage other people, especially remotely. Is that something you find straightforward or is it a challenge? No, it's definitely a challenge. I mean, fortunately there's lots of information available, but I mean, it's not unlike fitness, right? Especially when you get into the vaguer business concepts like hiring or marketing or things like that. There's plenty of people who are willing to take your money. Um, so, yeah, it's not unlike fitness in the sense that you've got to be on the lookout for stuff like that. And it's kind of made me appreciate the position that some clients are in, right? That they're essentially doing the same thing. You're looking for an expert and trying to evaluate someone's expertise while also being a non-expert, <laughs> um, which is kind of kind of difficult. But uh, yeah, at, at any rate, I would say like the the most stressful component of this is whenever a personnel issue is not going well, you know, that's hundred percent the, the most stressful part. And that would chew up enormous amounts of time, just absurd amounts of time gets spent on, you know, uh, trying to, you know, bring up, uh, it depends on what the issue is, right. But maybe you've got someone who's underperforming or, uh, something so you're trying to bring their performance back up to par and uh, maybe there's some resistance and it doesn't work out then you've got to let that person go and there's I mean this is a small business too you know people personally and you understand full well what that's doing to them you probably even like that person you know <laughs> uh, but at the same time you we're trying to keep in mind that, hey, there's other people and other families that depend on us not screwing this up. And you know, it, it's just, that's the hardest part of, of team management, I would say. I think it feels like the hardest part of all business to me. Uh, I think like past a certain yeah. point anyway, get, yeah, just managing a team of people. Yeah, you're right about that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Mike, I think that's all the questions we have, unless there's anything else you want. Almost all the questions. I wonder if we Oh, God, of um, course. Yeah. Just up with a a few of the, I think the the most important ones that we've been waiting to ask. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So um, if you had to give up one of each carbohydrate, protein, and fat, which one would you give up? Mm. And you can't say like, oh, uh, Black Widow Venom for for protein i guess it's got to be like a a routinely eaten one. Oh, oh gotcha gotcha i was i was ready to give up all fat 
Okay. Never have fat again. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, I mean, you can't give up protein. You can't give up carbs. I guess I'll just die. <laughs> You'd rather die than be a keto guy. <laughs> you underestimate my sweet tooth. Right. <laughs> no, okay, I, I misunderstood the question. Oh man. Well, I, I'm not sure I understand the question you said. What do you mean? So, like, you've got to pick one one food group under carbohydrates, protein, and fat that you've got to give up forever. Okay. Uh, okay. Oh man, it would break my heart, but I guess I've got to give up bread because I can't give up, you know, refined sugar. That would be, that would be yeah. terrible. Uh, impossible in the states as well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like in in the states, like you could go to the butcher and get a fish or a, a, a steak, and it would be dipped in sugar. high fructose corn syrup. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a cultural norm over here. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, second one is, oh, we haven't done protein and fat. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. So protein, I can, I can give up fish. Fish is, you know, there's nothing. It's rubbish, yeah. isn't it? Com- yeah, compared to the rest of them, it's rubbish. Yeah, yeah. I mean, who, who says they would give up beef, though? That's, uh, oh, I, have a I mean, that's that. sacrilege. I'd give up pork, but that's, that's because it's, I mean... Ah, I didn't even think about that. I didn't even think about So, pork, pork, yeah, because my wife doesn't eat pork. Uh, uh, so, okay. but, well. It's got rubbish macros as well. Oh, hold on, hold on. Time it's so versatile. Like, like 15 <laughs> types of pork. <laughs> no, no, no. See, you almost tricked me. <laughs> See, you had me ready to say I would give up pork, but. And I thought, oh, yeah, my wife doesn't eat pork, but I forgot. She doesn't eat most pork. We make exceptions for things like bacon. Oh, so, really? Okay. Yeah. And there's parma ham and the sausage and bratwurst. And <laughs> Look, and something else. Like, you can say, say what you want about uh, Americans and our, our love of sugar, but we get bacon right. <laughs> we do bacon right. And you guys, I'll give you, you that one. Suck at bacon. No, sorry, <laughs> have you not? You might be referring to the bacon you've had in like a, a premiere in prior to to delivering a seminar that might keep. I think there are, <laughs> that is bad bacon. I agree, that's right. bad bacon. Right. But yeah, okay. So I, I agree we were, with you. Like you. You can't give up bacon. When we were stationed in uh, in the Netherlands. Um, <laughs> they were telling us. Some people were telling us about a. Uh, uh, it's a NATO base, so uh, you know, people from different contingents from all over, uh, all over NATO were there, and they were saying like, "You've got to come by for the the Friday brunch at the German delegation because uh, the food is amazing." And they go on and on about the food, and they're like, "And they have this enormous plate of bacon, not the floppy bacon." A huge plate of American style crispy bacon. <laughs> we're like, okay, we're in. <laughs> yeah, wait, let's do it. <laughs> so then, uh, fat. Yeah, that's, I guess that's the protein. But, uh, 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 yeah, fat's in so many things. I know. Well, we're, we're talking like just oils, I guess. Like you, you give up an oil, but as long as it's not butter you just keep butter yeah that's that's it isn't it i suppose with fat as long as we keep butter then we're okay on it's fine (laughs) the rest of it can go (laughs) um so next question is would you rather live in peru with no well not would you rather like would you live in peru for four months with no wi-fi if it meant a permanent 50 kilogram gain on your squats See the cogs yeah. processing. Yeah, yeah, I would do that. <laughs> I suppose because the rate of return, like how long would you have to train to gain fifty kilos in your squat at this stage? More yeah. than four months. So, so just like, everything, I mean, everything shunted yeah. fifty kilos. Yeah. So the, the oh. same rate of progression happens, but it's all fifty kilos higher. I just get injured. I think. See, and I'm thinking too. Like, well, you said no Wi-Fi, but you could bring, you could bring the camera. Yeah. <laughs> 
make lots and lots of content. You do a full scale documentary when you get back. Ah, how I gained 50 kilos in <laughs> in Peru without yeah, Wi-Fi. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. And you know what? It would be sold on Netflix as well, wouldn't it be like? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you could have a great time with it. Fine. Yeah. Where's, where is your squat at now, Mike? Compared, I mean, this is a danger of going off on a, a tangent, but where's, <laughs> where's, where's your squat now compared to pre back injury? Well, it looks like it's creeping up. I'm doing like sets of 10 and things like that. It's really quite good. Um, like around some of my all-time bests. But uh, whether or not that will translate to heavier weights is yet to be seen. But, um, yeah, it's. I think I could probably do a, a personal best set of 10 right now. Um, certainly a few more weeks I can, I can do that. Just sets of 10 on squat are just... Awful. Yeah, it's horrible. It's a terrible yeah. experience. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a video you uploaded, I think it was quite recently, where you said like midway through the set, you realized that if you didn't speed up the reps, you were in trouble. You like started out slow and then you're like... Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I started out squatting like a powerlifter a little bit, like a do a rep, stand up and go and take, take my breath. And then do another... And I mean, it wasn't like a terribly long time but after four reps like that i'm like this is taking way too long you know? <laughs> so it's like you've got to start breathing on the way down kind of <laughs> things that these are like technical details that you would never teach but you kind of figure it out if you've been lifting long the internal alarm bell goes off of like i, right. I need to do something about this right, right 50 kilos in peru pretty good trade yeah, yeah. and then with the best uh, with the best selling Netflix documentary to come out of it as well, I think. <laughs> right. Great outcome. Look out look out, Dennis, I'm moving to Peru. <laughs> Actually I don't know if that would be enough to save me. <laughs> <laughs> you got the final question, Yusuf? Oh, final one is if you had to give up squat shoes or pants for life, which one would you do? <laughs> Define pants. Ah, <laughs> uh, see, I, I'm glad you asked that. I was, I was wondering what, like, whether you would um, take you trousers. In. Yeah. So I, I mean, I think you should have the, you can have the choice, like underpants or trousers. <laughs> <laughs> if we're talking about like full length pants, it's a tough decision because I used to squat in flats and. I could I could sort that out, and I live in I live in Wyoming now, so like going without pants would be pretty painful. Uh, at the same time, I don't know, but I, I enjoy having squat shoes. I probably have more pairs of squat shoes than I do any other, uh, probably all other types of shoe combined. Really? <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean, like they never wear out, you know, and I've been doing this for 20, 24 years or something. So What's the What's the squat shoe of choice then, Mike? We'll we'll wrap up with this with final question. What's the, <laughs> if you can pick, if you can pick one one squat shoe, what's the brand? One. Oh, don't make me pick a favorite. We'll <laughs> <Yeah, right. laughs> uh, oh, oh, uh, uh, do it like this. So, uh, currently, for like heeled squat shoes, I'm using the uh, Reebok Legacy lifters. Okay. I like those. Uh, and the best pair of flat squat shoes or lifting shoes that I've ever had have been, um, I'm cheating here, but I took a pair of weightlifting shoes. They were the Dewin weightlifting shoes with the composite rubber heel. I took them to a, a shoe repair shop and I said, hey, take the sole off, shave it down so it's flat, put the sole back on. And wow. that was the best squat shoe, deadlift shoe that I've ever had. Because it's all the it's all the benefits of the weightlifting shoe, but it's flat. And, I, I and can as well. I can remember, Mike, and this is going to sound so weird to you. I can remember talking to Bryce Lewis about those shoes, and was both <laughs> trying to figure out what they were. Yeah, because they were like they look like do win weightlifting shoes, but they also look flat, like what? custom mod. But they don't. You can't buy them. Like what's right. going on? And that right. like, years later, I've just had the answer. Well, um, when it comes to lifting shoes, I'm like the princess in the pea, you know, like I'll wear, 
uh, wear like wrestling shoes or something that's totally fine for 99.9% of lifters. And I'm like, oh, it feels squishy to me. <laughs> wow. So you just need it. Like, I think once you've been squatting in weightlifting shoes for a while, then you, you notice when other shoes are squishing around. And... Yeah, that's a good point. It, it, I think like that something that affects you, especially when, you, when you're doing a set of 10, you want to be comfortable, don't you? <laughs> you want to be comfortable. Right. Mike, it's been awesome having you back on. Thank you very much for, for coming back on. If people want to find out more about you or watch a video of you nearly putting your window out with a with a front squat that you miss, where's, 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 where's the best place to find out more about you and reactive training systems? I'm on Instagram, Mike Tushir, um, but you can also find reactive training systems. It's probably a bit easier to spell even. Um, reactive training systems on Instagram and YouTube. Also, we were talking about the website. It's uh, reactivetrainingsystems.com. Awesome. All right, that's everything from this episode. Um, we'll speak to you next time. Want to learn more about the systems we use to run, build, and scale propanefitness.com? Head over to propanefitness.com forward slash business podcast and you can get your hands on our free training that covers the seven steps that we take with every client that we help build their own online business and also the seven steps that we use to successfully build Propane Fitness. We walk through the sales systems, the delivery systems, follow-up, remarketing, how to basically build your program so that it delivers coaching to your clients without you being there 24-7. We really do cover the full thing, right? And if you want to continue even further and potentially work with us, there's a chance to book in a call to have an informal chat with Yusuf or I to just basically see if any of our programs would be a fit to help you get from where you are to where you want to get to. So go to propanefitness.com forward slash business podcast today and get access to that. If you'd like to learn just more about Yusuf and I, more about us, what we do, follow us on the various channels, the best place to go is our YouTube channel. We have a load of stuff from fitness content, productivity content, why Yusuf slept on the floor for several months, why he's been having cold showers. There's always stuff on there that's entertaining and hopefully informative. So just go to YouTube, search for Propane Fitness, and you can find out a bit more about us there as well. Speak to you on the next episode.